Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church. It's good to be here to be able to worship uh, together this morning. Welcome those of you that made the decision to uh, worship with us online today. I uh, heard a lot of stories about Vintage Road this morning. Uh, but I'm glad that many of you uh, were able to make it today to be together here with us. We have our Global Outreach Conference coming up in just a few days, and so you'll see uh, this insert in your weekly this week with all kinds of information. There's a schedule. Uh, next week, there'll be a booklet for you uh, in your weekly, so we're excited. I would just remind you before we begin today just to make a note that a number of our global partners this year are unable to have their presentations live streamed due to the nature of where they serve and the kind of work that they are doing. So uh, make note to attend in the building if you are able and if you desire, uh, since a number of our partners will not be with us online this year. So as we prepare for Global Outreach Conference, our memory verse for the month of March is very appropriate in regards to the conference. It goes along very well with the theme, so let's say it together this morning. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, Revelation 14, 6. Very good. And, and speaking of Bible memory and Bible memorization, our quizzers today will be at Lancaster Bible College for one of their end-of-the-season tournaments. And so if you'd like to support them, uh, you're welcome to head up that way and join the quizzers up at Lancaster Bible College this morning. Uh, they've been working really, really hard. Uh, I can attest to that as having children in our home uh, this year who are both uh, doing quizzing. They're working really hard at uh, memorizing and pulling all of those things together. So good job, and thank you to uh, our leaders, those who are volunteering and coaching each of those teams. Your work is appreciated, and it will not return void. God's word never returns void. So we are continuing this morning in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we have two more messages to go in this series, but after this week we're going to pause for Global Outreach Conference, and we'll actually conclude uh, 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter Sunday. Uh, rather appropriately, it's a resurrection message, and it's Resurrection Sunday, and so we only have three messages total left in our study of 1 Corinthians. And so, as we begin today, we begin with a question that's asked of Paul. Now, it's very interesting. I don't know if you remember, but I remember as a young, up-and-coming junior high student in my junior high school, I had a teacher. He taught American history. And I was a seventh-grade student and you remember the kind of intimidating reality of being a new middle schooler. You're, you, you were at the top of the food chain the year before, and now all of a sudden you're in your first year of middle school and you're back down at the bottom. You're a bottom feeder again, and, and there's all these older kids that are bigger than you and older than you, and, uh, and the teachers are new. And I remember walking into this particular professor's classroom, and I'm not going to say his name because I, I don't want anybody to, to, to think I'm throwing him under the bus because I loved him. But it was a very interesting class. It was an American history class. And I remember I walked into uh, this class with a friend of mine. 
and we sat down in our desks, and this professor particularly was not uh, excited about the way that my friend walked into his class, and he promptly reminded him that you never get a second chance to make a good first impression, right, and so apparently my friend had not made a very good first impression to begin with to start this class off. So now, as young seventh grade students, with our first ever uh, middle school teacher, we're kind of, at least I was, kind of like shaking at my desk, like, what, what's going to happen next? That was a pretty intimidating way to begin our middle school careers. Well, this particular professor went on to explain how in his class, there were no stupid Questions. That's right. No stupid questions. Now, we've probably all heard that before multiple times. Well, my friend already had not made a very good first impression, and so his second impression was going to be even worse and uh, was really going to draw the wrath of this professor when he said, what is this class even going to be about <laughs> in a rather uh, apathetic uninterested voice. Well, this particular professor kept a box of pink pearl erasers at the top of his desk. You remember them well, pink pearl erasers, the ones that come out that have the angles on either end that you use to erase. He reached into his box of pink pearl erasers. You could never do this today. You would get arrested probably. And he chucked that pink pearl eraser right across the room and it bounced right off uh, my friend's head. And, uh, and, and he said, I said that there were no stupid questions, but that, that was a stupid question. And the class was called American History. So we should expect uh, to understand what we were going to study. Well, Paul is going to begin this section of this chapter, this part of his letter, uh, by addressing a question that's come up, a question that uh, maybe a little bit of a silly, we won't use the word stupid, but maybe a little bit of a silly question. And as Paul continues to unravel the new reality of resurrection from the dead to this blossoming congregation that has gathered in Corinth, he's going to remind us that the dynamics at work in both our current and future resurrection realities are dynamics that belong to God. That resurrection is God's work. It's God's work in God's world by His power in and through His people. And so if you have your Bibles today, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 49 today as we continue through this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 to 39, and we're going to see this morning together how resurrection is God's work in God's world by His power in and through His people. Before we read, let's pray. Father, we have gathered today, and before we even break open Your Word, we have sung so much and celebrated so much about life. We are alive because Jesus is alive, and you give us life, and that's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful reality for us to hold on to. It's a motivating reality for us as we consider how we are to live in this world today. And on top of all of that, Father, we get to open up your word today, which is also described as living. There's so much life here, life upon life upon life, and that's the hope that we have 
Uh, it's a hope that moves us today and animates us today in our behaviors and the patterns that we live by, but it's also a hope that we hold on to and look forward to in the future, that one day when our bodies uh, go below the ground here on earth, we will be raised up with you. What a beautiful reality. We look forward to that today. We thank you for your word where Paul is going to continue to unpack what that truth would look like uh, for us. And we just pray as we focus in on these words that you would use your word to uh, change us, to help us to grow, to help us to learn how to love you better and grow in our love for you, but also to help us learn how to love our neighbors and love one another better uh, so that we can not just be hearers of your word, but also doers of your word in the places that you have planted us. Thank you so much for this time we have to study together today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat, other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the work of God. Paul has earlier in this chapter attempted to thwart or even subvert the influence of those who had identified themselves as the church, yet were refusing to accept the dynamic realities of resurrection of the dead. And as Paul has so remarkably and convincingly expressed to us, resurrection is God's work. 
Yet, as he has successfully shepherded the congregation in Corinth towards belief in and conviction regarding the resurrection, inevitably, as we see in our text today, there were questions. This can be confusing. This is supernatural stuff. And so, very naturally, questions begin to arise about how this is going to work. How are the dead raised? Show us some sort of diagram, Paul. Draw for us a picture. What kind of body do dead people really have? But God's ways, friends, are not like our ways. His plans are not like ours. It is for His glory alone that He both reveals and conceals matters from His creation. And it's hard for our minds to grasp how the dynamics of our future resurrection from the dead will play out. And so Paul moves to the illustration of a kernel. The seed must be buried for life to spring forth. You see an illustration of this on your screen this morning. There is a tomato kernel or a tomato seed. We then see it grow into a sprout, all of a sudden flourishing into what never looks like the kind of tomato plant that we have. Uh, But that is one beautiful tomato plant. And so in verse 37, Paul reiterates that what goes into the ground will not come out of the ground the same. Something will be vastly, extraordinarily, even supernaturally, in this case, eternally different. But, Paul says in verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And the words that Paul's using here no doubt continue to animate our imaginations with the artistry of God's creation account in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And in this chapter, in chapter 15, Paul's already referenced this portion of the Old Testament scrolls. He's already referred to death coming into the world through the failure of Adam in verses 21 and 22. But now in verse 38, each kind of seed has its own body. And doesn't this sound very familiar to us? Sounds like Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Take a look with me. God said, let the land produce vegetation, Plants yielding seeds and trees on the land, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their own kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kind. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. So the creation narrative's central focus is on the creative work of God. God gives life through his breath. God's work, friends, then, is life-giving work. Now watch the pattern that we see. He breathes life into creation. He breathes life into animals. He breathes life into man and woman. He breathes life into our spirits in salvation. He breathes life into the church. He breathes life into those who would experience physical death. The pattern is God gives life. We receive life. 
But when God gives, he gives according to his creative design and purpose. And as Paul's soon going to unravel for us, God's design in creation, God's design still today is that there would be diversity. And the future resurrection will reflect the diversity of God's original design. And so as he continues his reflection on the creation account in Genesis, Paul moves into verses 39 to 41, and he's intending to show us how God's world reflects the diversity that we will experience in our future resurrected state. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. We're going, has anybody in here, maybe online, have you ever been to one of the Smithsonian's? in Washington. Anybody been to a Smithsonian? A number of you have. Big museum. I want to move into a big museum with you today here in verses 39 to 41. A great hallway, would you? This hallway is divided up into seven sections. So imagine this with me. You're standing at the front of a great hallway. Massive, kind of like what you see in the Smithsonian's. This hallway is divided into seven sections. Each of the sections is a testimony to the diversity that God has sown into his original creative design. And as we walk down this hallway, which we're going to do together today, as we walk down this hallway, on either side of the hallway are these massive representations or massive artistic portraits of each created being or thing that God has made. Each portrait a testimony to the greatness and wonder of our Creator King. So let's start again in verse 39 and enter this great hallway together and explore with Paul the artistry of God's grand design. So look at where he begins in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans. And we may consider in the first exhibit on one side of the hall a great image of Adam, and on the other side a great image of Eve. This would be exhibit one. And then we continue in verse 39. Another for birds. And we recall, in fact, I just saw it this week. Uh, we were walking off the football field after track practice, and I've, I've never seen one this close, but I saw it this week. An eagle was literally flying so close over our heads that everyone could look up and see its beauty. And that white head and, and how effortlessly and, and with great power. And you look up and you see the eagle and you think, wow, what majesty. Or you look out and you look in God's creation at the animals he's created. And you see the lion and the elephant. And you think, what beautiful exhibits, what beautiful designs by God. This exhibit too. So we continue in verse 39. Another for birds. Sorry, animals was verse 39, then birds, I skipped ahead. So we had flesh, we had animals. I'm excited about this, right? God's creation's beautiful. We have flesh, we have animals, we have all these different zebras, zebras, black and white stripes, kangaroos, things that jump around with pouches where they can keep their babies. Who does that kind of stuff? Who's creative like that? Only God could come up with that kind of beauty in his design. Consider the giraffe, that 
massively long neck and those shapes. You know that no giraffe has the same design on its body. Every design is unique to every single giraffe. Exhibits two, the animals. Exhibits three, the birds. And in each of these exhibits, Paul is walking us backwards in the creation narrative. He's worked from man, and now as we move into exhibit four, we turn our attention to the fish. Look at verse 39, another for the fish. And think about the whale, the massive animals that fill the depths of the ocean, the squids. Some of you might like the little fish, like in Finding Nemo. Those are fun too, the little clownfish. God's design all over his creation. Then in verse 40, we move into a new section of the hallway. We've dealt with all the animals, the birds, and the fish. And in this new section of the hallway, on one side of the hallway, there's an expansive painting of all of these multi-tone blues and whites representing the skies and the clouds, while on the other side we see all the colors of earthy brown and green and blue representing the earth and the separation of the waters and the lands. Look at verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. These two exhibits make up exhibit five and exhibit six. But now, friends, now we move into what is truly a remarkable and extraordinary final portion of this great hall. And as we move into it, we're encapsulated simultaneously by great darkness and great light. Exhibit seven truly demonstrates the unity within the diversity of God's design. Now think with me, on the left side of the hall, as you turn your attention, there is a bright and colorful uh, portrait full of yellows and oranges and whites and even some pink hues. And as our eyes come up towards the ceiling, we notice the colors begin to darken all the way up until we are looking now at the very top where we see twinkles of bright yellow on an entirely black vault or ceiling. And as our eyes come down on the right side of the hallway, we see deep grays, blues, yellow shades as we gaze out into the expanse of space, staring into the brightness of the moon. Verse 41 there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. I don't know about you, but this is a hallway that I could stand in for a very, very long time. I mean, have, you, have you ever been that captured before? We walk into some of these great Smithsonian's or some of you have been to the Niagara Falls. Some of you have been places that are just otherworldly. And you can do nothing but stand the Grand Tetons. Right? You can do nothing but just stand and take in the majesty and the glory of God in his creative design. So beautiful. Yet wherever in the world we are, so incredibly diverse. This is nature. 
This is God's creation on full display. The natural with the handprints of supernatural design fully embracing and holding it together. All of it, both in its unity and diversity, created to bring glory to its creator. This is God's power on display before our very eyes. And friends, we get to live here. We get to marvel in it. We get to tend and care for it and maintenance it every single day. Our God is a marvelous and powerful God. So Paul makes this transition regarding the power of God in verse 42. And he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. I love how author Eugene Peterson has said it. He says it this way, quote, the seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural, end quote. Natural to supernatural. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And it's hard for us to consider or understand how all of this works. Indeed, very soon, Paul is going to refer to much of this as a great mystery. Later in the same chapter, resurrection is the power of God at work, not the will of humankind. It's God's power. And perhaps the clearest glimpse that we get of a physically resurrected body is that of Jesus's. When Jesus was raised from the dead, there were still marks on his body from the torment that he faced in the crucifixion. Let's refresh our minds. John chapter 20, verses 26 to 29. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have believed. Could it be, friends, could it be that in our future physical bodily resurrection, we will have brand new, eternal bodies that bear the scars and marks of the pain that we've suffered here on earth. It seems like that's what we see in the example of Jesus here in John chapter 20. The old flesh has been transformed into new creation, yet not new in the sense that it doesn't bear any of the characteristics of the old. Rather, it's new in the sense that it has the same appearance. But now it has an eternal quality or component or dynamic that is an essential, enduring, eternal part of it. It's not just that we are new creation in our spiritual regeneration, but also that we will be new creation in our physical birth after our death on earth. It's a lot to consider. This is a lot to consider. I had somebody come up to me last week and ask, how will this all work? And I said, I don't know. 
I don't know, but I can't wait. I can't wait. And I've heard that before from some of our senior saints. Friends, we suffer here on earth. This is a struggle. There is pain that we go through in life. Listening uh, today, actually on my walk this morning, uh, testimony of a Christian journalist who's just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. He's in his mid-30s. He has a two-year-old son. And man, it just reminded me that in this world, we're going to have tribulation, sickness, pain. It's all part of the bodies that we bear here on this earth. But one day, friends, one day, for those who are in Christ, our eyes are going to close here and open into this new and glorious eternal reality where we are changed in an incomprehensibly eternal way. In a way that our bodies will no longer face that kind of sickness or pain or torment that we face here on earth. So it's by the power of God that we come to know him and be born in him, resurrected here on earth. And it's also by the power of God that we come into his eternal presence as new creation. I think of, of, of the father today, when I think of our father God, I think of him as he's represented a lot of times in the Old Testament, like a mother hen gathering her chicks together under the refuge and security of her wings. Our Father is drawing his people under the security of his wings here on earth. And though he draws a diverse people from every corner of the earth, every nation and tribe and people and language, Paul is going to remind us, and we're going to see in the next portion of the text here, there are qualities that all of his children, no matter where we come from, share in common. Verses 45 to 49, Paul begins to unpack that. Paul's knowledge of the Genesis scroll continues to illuminate his thinking here as the Spirit guides what he is writing. And again, he draws us back to the account of our origins. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 in verse 45. Take a look at verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Then verse 46. However, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first Adam is animated and given life by God. The last Adam animates and gives life to the people of God. Isn't that amazing? The first Adam receives life from God the second Adam gives life to people. And in following a primary theme in Genesis, though the first in order is the natural, it will not be the first that receives the eternal blessing, but the second. It wasn't Ishmael. Rather, it was Isaac. It wasn't Esau. Instead, it was Jacob. It wasn't Manasseh. Rather, Ephraim. Adam would fail, Christ would not. Amen? Amen. Where Adam stumbled, Christ had victory. 
The natural is important. It's not to be diminished, dismissed, but the spiritual is of an eternal or everlasting quality. Look again at verses 47 and 48. The first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from where? Where is he from? Heaven. Verse 48, like the one made of dust, so too are those made of dust. And like the one from heaven, so too are those who are heavenly. Friends, woven into the very depths of our DNA is the dust we share from humanity's origins. We are all made of the same stuff. Every nation, tribe, language, and people. It was interesting. Yesterday, Brighton and I had an opportunity to go out and have breakfast together. Yes, we drove in that weather. My mother was very upset with me, by the way. Um, Yeah, I took a picture of us having breakfast, and she said, You drove in that this morning? Are you crazy? Eh, It wasn't too bad. And we went to one of our favorite spots in Lancaster City. It's it's one that we enjoy going to uh, quite a bit. And as we were leaving, he saw uh, a painting on the side of the building, And it said something along the lines of, underneath our flesh, all of us have bones. (laughs) And it was just a reminder that we all share in our very DNA, in our very being, we all share the same stuff. And in the great hymnal of the Jewish faith, King David remarks this reality as well and talks about it as well. He says in Psalm 103, Verses uh, 13 through 16, I'm going to just read those. Uh, He remarks and shares in this very idea. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his faithful followers. Look at verse 14. For he knows what we are made of. He realizes we are made of clay. A person's life is like grass. Like a flower in the field, it flourishes. But when the hot wind blows, it disappears and no And one can no longer even spot the place where it once grew. Before Jesus, friends, we share in our earthiness. After Jesus, we share in the earthy and the heavenly. We now share in both for those of us who are in Christ. And so we draw Paul's thoughts in this section of chapter 15 to a conclusion by considering the exhortation he gives In verse 49. Take a look again at verse 49 today. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, again, what has Paul been doing throughout this whole portion of his letter? Where does this take our minds today when we see that verb, those verbiage? Where Where do our minds go? Where do we go? Image? What are we thinking of? Genesis chapter 1, right? Again, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image that we've been given is the image, friends, that we are to bear. We bear the image of the first humankind in the reality of our sin and brokenness. We've talked about this before. We bear the image of Adam in the reality that all of us share in the same 
two gigantic problems. We all have a terrible problem with sin, and soon we will be dead. Sin and death is the mark, or are the marks that define the first Adam. We bear that image. And Adam passed this image on to his own children. It tells us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own what? Likeness, according to his own image. This was passed on. And yet, as children of God, adopted by God through Jesus, we now also should bear the image of his son. That means we reflect his attributes, we live by his words, we're motivated and compelled by his example to do as he did. Paul explores this in his letter to the Romans. Take a look. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into what? The image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Friends, we bear the image of our heavenly father. We bear the image of the man of the dust. And we bear the image. For those of us who are in Christ, we bear the image of the man of heaven. His name is Jesus. Now there's a small particular phrase that we need to address this morning. Perhaps your version at the end in verse 49 says, we shall also. That's in the future indicative. It's interesting. The majority of our oldest existing manuscripts actually have this phrase in the aorist subjunctive, which reads like this, let us also. Small distinction, but very, very important. Because if we only consider the phrase, we shall also, as future indicative, it could cause us to simply just sit on our hands here on earth and hold on to this future hope, not considering how the patterns of our lives should be changing or transforming now. But when we read this phrase, as it appears in most of our ancient manuscripts, as let us also, we are reminded that in light of our future hope, we are to shine forth the image of the one who is enthroned on our hearts. That is Jesus. We live today in consideration of the principles that govern his kingdom, the kingdom that we will one day inherit. We don't have to wait, friends. While we eagerly await that kingdom, we can get to work right now in living out its ideals the very ideals that Jesus preached and lived out while he walked on the earth. And this is not the first time that Paul has used the aorist subjunctive in chapter 15 in this portion of his letter. In fact, in verse 32, when he quotes from Isaiah 22 to combat the attitude of indifference and apathy that unbelief in the resurrection had brought into the church, he also uses the aorist subjunctive. Look at verse 32. What does he say? Let us. Let us, that's aorist subjunctive, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so church, rather than 
an attitude of complacency and indifference while we await the ultimate fulfillment of our future glory, let us also right now bear the image of the man of heaven. His name is Jesus. God's people are called to action today. Today. Jesus invites his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. He commands us to love as he has loved. And he commissions us to go into this world that he has planted us in and make disciples by sharing with others this great news that we have. And we've asked this question before as we've concluded our time together in this series. We've actually asked it at the end of every message, and I think we should ask it again today. In light of what we study today, how might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly not yet believing world? Considering what we've studied today, we might say this. Eagerly anticipating our future resurrection, we live today reflecting the image of our creator and bearing the image of Jesus, shining as light, proclaiming the gospel that all may hear, see, believe, be saved, and share together with us in our common, future, eternal destiny. As we consider that, our team will come and we'll close in prayer. Father, in many ways, we do long and we do yearn for that future hope. Lord, our bodies here on earth, as you know, as you've created us and are very intimately related to the way that we've been designed, our bodies here disintegrate. We get sick. There's difficult diagnoses. Things happen. Lord, we look forward to that day when we're resurrected in an eternal state with a body that will no longer endure the pain and the torment that our bodies go through here in this place. But Father, as we wait, we, we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be a people that sits on our hands. We, we want to be motivated and compelled by the example of Jesus as it's revealed in your word. And we see Jesus going after people who are hurting and in pain, loving them, going after people that nobody would have paid any mind to, think of the lepers. He went. And it's amazing, Father, that their leprosy didn't infect him, but it was his holiness and his righteousness that healed the leper. And to think, Father, that that same work is alive and well inside of us, how motivating. And you've planted us here in this place, and you've called us to reach the people in this community. And we're going to hear testimony soon, Lord, of how you're using our global partners all over the world to do this very work. And I just pray, Father, that it would be motivating and compelling to us, that we would love our neighbors, that we would share the good news of your love with them, that we wouldn't just wait for the future glory that you've promised us, but while we're, while we're waiting, Lord, we'd be at work doing your work as you continue to build your church here in this world. Help us glorify and honor you. Help us to love as we have been loved. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.